This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. This episode of Journal Club, we look at the pineal gland and DMT, fact versus myth, look at a paper by legendary psychedelic researcher, Dr. David Nichols. I watched the uh, talk that he gave that this paper was, he said the paper was based on, um... Inspired by, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I I have I pulled some of the comments, too, so we'll maybe go over them a little later because they're pretty funny. So people are really attached cool. to the idea. But uh, anyway, okay, so this is uh, DMT in the pineal, pineal gland separating fact from myth by David E. Nichols. Him and his son are uh, like all stars in in uh, psychedelic research. He was the first one that we got the psychedelics from uh, at Tulane to give to the zebrafish. Nichols was. Oh, oh wow, cool, cool. Yeah, I figured you knew who he was because I was just reading on his Wikipedia page. Um, worked in the field of psychiatric drugs since 1969. Uh, uh-huh. While he was a graduate student, he patented the method that is used to make the optical isomers of hallucinogenic amphetamines, um, published 250 reports and book chapters describing the relationship between the structure of a molecule and its biological effects. Uh, currently mm-hmm. adjunct professor UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy, where I actually applied there, uh, not because of the pharmacy, because there was jobs then. Uh, it would, I would have been like uh, office staff, but I ended up, I ended up getting a job across the street at the school of nursing. And so this paper, uh, he's basically he goes over. There's like ancient myths about the pineal gland going back to the Egyptians, and then there's some more recent myths. <laughs> Uh, that mm-hmm. that are have to do with a, that movie, The Spirit Molecule, or it was actually a book by Rick Strassman. Um, mm-hmm. But the old myths I was looking into, I mean, it's, okay, Eye of Horus, the Egyptian god. Uh, he's an Egyptian god with a falcon head. Um, but that's kind of all I got out of that. Uh, Descartes was another one, the philosopher. Um, he called the pineal gland the seat of the soul and the place right. in which all of our thoughts are formed. I don't think that's scientifically sound. And uh, even in this link uh, from Stanford talking about um, Descartes and the pineal gland, he said some of Descartes' basic anatomical and physiological assumptions were totally mistaken, not only by our standards, but also in light of what was already known in his time. So, yeah. so there's a lot of myths surrounding the pineal gland and I guess the um, the claim that this paper is trying to rebut is that the, the gland produces enough endogenous DMT to ha- explain out of body experiences or near death experiences and it doesn't right yeah, yeah. So he's saying this, so this he, is not his true goal was to essentially, his, his goal was essentially to evaluate if it's physiologically possible for you to get a threshold dose of DMT from your pineal gland. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think that overall, I think that he's pretty fair. I don't think that he's running at this, like, this is completely wrong. What are you guys thinking? Like he lays out a very methodical sort of, you know, point by point uh, assessment of whether or not uh, DMT could be produced in concentrations that would be enough for, for you to feel it. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, so we were talking about the myth in the last journal club. That's what got us here, uh, mm-hmm. that it gets released when you're born and when you die. I said that. Uh, yeah. This has been a myth for, you know, for ages, for centuries. Um, and so it's, it's, it's just interesting. Um, but I think, I think where he ends up with the uh, Kappa opiate receptors is, is pretty interesting as well. Yeah. So the actual, the purpose of the pineal gland is the nighttime, nighttime secretion of melatonin. He even mentioned that there's no uh, serious side effects when it's, when the glands actually removed in rats and humans. I, is there any other purpose for melatonin other than, because we think of it, we think of skin pigmentation. Well, so, yeah, so he, you were talking about the penolectomized rats. I thought that was a pretty interesting word. Yeah. Um, but you're confusing melatonin with melanin. Melanin is... Oh, uh, okay. Uh, like variations in skin color. Um, but yeah, so the penile gland primarily makes melatonin, and we all know melatonin is like a supplement that you can take, and it's supposed to regulate your circadian rhythm. So like, you know, when you sleep and when you uh, are awake, but like you mentioned, when they took the penal glands out of the rats, the, the, the rats without the penal gland didn't had the same amount of sleep, same amount of rapid eye movements, same sort of, uh, wavelengths and, uh, Delta Delta waves and the rhythm amplitude. So essentially, you know, taking out the, taking out the penal gland doesn't result in any sort of evidence that it, it, uh, is critical for these things. So it's, it's interesting in, in that way. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention real quick too, why there was so much interest in this, I thought it was interesting. You know, in your brain, you it's, it's usually a mirror image either side. So like you got amygdala on the left, you got amygdala on the right. Um, it's split down the middle and you have the corpus callosum that connects the two. The penile gland is one of the, maybe the only gland uh, where there's only one. And I think that has something to do with, uh, you know, the birth of these myths. It's sort of buried deep in your brain and there's only one there's not pair of them so they they thought it was super important so it says uh the adult pineal gland weighs less than two tenths of a gram its principal function is what, what did i just say its principal function is to produce about 30 uh what is that micrograms per day of melatonin and it says melatonin is a hormone that regulates circadian rhythm um with mm. interactions with melatonin receptors so it's a hormone there are minute concentrations of dmt in the brain um but he says they're not significant to produce psychoactive effects so why are people so attached to the idea that there's enough dmt in your brain to trip on or have a near-death experience or yeah something like that yeah so I was looking at the threshold dose um, for DMT. So to like, to notice the effects, to be able to consciously notice the effects is about two to three milligrams. Um, so yeah, he goes through and, and discusses whether or not the penile gland could actually even produce that much, um, given that it only produces, I can't see it exactly, but you're right. It's around like 30 uh, 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 milligrams or micrograms of the melatonin. Yeah. Um, 
I think there's maybe, I think there's two, re- I think there's several reasons why people are holding on to this, this thought. I think the first one is that it's sort of like a security blanket or it's um, information that you can expect. Like everybody wants to know what happens after you die. We've always wanted to know that, you know, mm-hmm. since humans were humans. Um, and this provides a plausible mechanistic answer to um, you know, reports that people see like, you know, that they saw the light or their life flash before them. Um, and then when you're born, you know, there's sort of this idea that you're coming out of the darkness into the light and you're just sort of like activated. So I think people are, are using it as a bit of a comfort blanket. Um, but I think it definitely started because of the, the anatomy of it. It was, it was unique in that there was only one, there wasn't two that were mirrored on either side of the brain. So they have to, that's unlike any other part of the brain. So they have to explain that. And then I think that's where the third eye notion came from. I think they even said something like, yeah, they believe it was the third eye, but then it got sucked back into the head and it's like a vestigial trait. Um, but at one point it was an eye. And I thought that was pretty wild. It, you mean at one point it was an eye? You mean like there was some kind of evolutionary thing where we were about to get a yes, third eye? Yes, yes, yes. But that's <laughs> it's total myth. Total. Oh, okay. Myth. Like you mentioned that. Myth. You know, like Egyptians thought it was literally a third eye that then got sucked back into the brain. Oh, okay. That's um, what they thought. Back then, all they had was anatomy to look at. You know. Yeah, and I was gonna say they were already doing dissections, but yeah, mummies. So they were already messing with the body mm-hmm. <laughs> back then. Oh yeah. So yeah. Yep. So there, there's this whole issue of uh, some of the people that are arguing against him say that uh, it's when the uh, pineal gland calcifies, then um, I guess their argument is it would reach a point right before death that it releases all kinds of DMT. But so what is about calcification of the pineal gland and these claims about uh, DMT? Is, is there any like experiment that, that show that a calcified gland produces more DMT? So pineal calcification essentially refers to like an increase of calcium in the pineal gland. Um, and as an ion, uh, calcium is involved in sort of the, the balance between the inside of the neuron and the outside of the neuron and when the neuron fires. Um, so I think that what they're trying to say with this pineal gland classification is essentially that once there's an overload of calcium ions in the pineal gland, there starts to be sort of like this wild behavior, like almost like you could imagine a seizure in the part of the, the motor cortex of your brain. So essentially when it, when it gets destroyed or when it's calcified, it, the neuron firing is not regulated like it would be. And it could, it could, you know, presumably or the hypothesis that then that will re- result in release of the DMT. And I think they said something for like 30 minutes, even after death, uh, there's still activity there. Um, but yeah, that's what they're saying. Calcification is like a, a major uh, off-balance teeter-totter way that, that happens to the pineal gland. And perhaps that could uh, lead to um, uh, release of DMT that could cause threshold doses. Um, that's, what, that's what they're saying there. Uh, I don't know where you were going to go next, but I wanted to just talk about the, the enzymes okay. um, and, and the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Is that cool? Or we yeah, yeah, we yeah, definitely. Get to that down the road. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, so, in order for something to be considered a neurotransmitter, there's a criterion in which they they have to 
meat. They have to be produced within a neuron. So on the inside of it, they have to be found within a neuron. And then when the neuron is stimulated, it's released. Um, and then once it's released, there's an enzyme that uh, like degrades it and there's a receptor on the other side. So you got to hit all of those. Like dopamine is made in the neuron. It's held in uh, uh, synapses or um, synapsosomes, like little lipid bubbles. It goes to the edge of the neuron, it gets pushed outside, and then it, it causes a change on the next neuron down the line. Um, and so one of the ways that we can like assess whether or not something is a neurotransmitter or not is looking for the presence of enzymes that either are involved in making it or in degrading it. Um, and I think most people are probably aware when you, when you do ayahuasca, when you do DMT, and we mentioned this last, last week as well, but, um, you usually take it with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Um, mm -hmm. and that's, that essentially blocks the enzyme that destroys the DMT once it gets in the synapse. So the monoamine oxidase, uh, like very quickly degrades the, uh, DMT. It's not necessarily that you know, monoamine oxidase also does uh, dopamine, all of the catecholamines. Um, but it's interesting how quickly DMT is removed. It's removed much faster than like serotonin and dopamine. Um, and so they, you know, he, they talk about the, you know, location of enzymes that are present in the body and the lungs. Um, there's some studies that they did where they were, you know, they radioactively tagged it and then, uh, injected the, uh, the radioactive tag and then how they determined how long it took to get to the blood brain barrier. Um, and essentially I think his conclusion is that, uh, it's not the way that these enzymes are, are located and how fast they degrade and the fact that we don't know if the DMT is made in the neurons or outside of the neurons, there's no real like bubbles of DMT that can be found in the neurons, that that's sort of evidence that's not necessarily a neurotransmitter or released uh, at any point. Yeah, I was actually going to ask that next about whether it's a neurotransmitter. So are there people claiming that it's a neurotransmitter? So given its activity, like consciously and behaviorally, the sort of like, you know, drastic changes that occur once you consume DMT, that would lead one to just sort of believe or hypothesize right off the bat that that's a neurotransmitter. It's like, it's, go, it's going in the body, it's going to the brain, and it's acting on receptors that are related to, you know, consciousness, emotional processing, introspection. Um, if it was a neurotransmitter, the argument that it is released from the penile gland would be much stronger. And so one of the ways that we can deduce and sort of eliminate it, that the, the possibility is to go through that criterion and, you know, hormones would also be considered neurotransmitters with this criterion. Um, it's, it's just, a, it's a matter of sort of, is it a signaling molecule that sends a message to the next neuron down the line? Um, and so that's why it's important to sort of determine are there enzymes to make it, are there enzymes to degrade it? Is it stored somewhere? When is it released, et cetera? So if it's not a neurotransmitter, then what is uh, the endogenous DMT then that we have trace amounts of? That's is a good it, question. Yeah. Um, I don't know I if they answer he, it in so, the paper. But. It says only trace amounts of DMT have been detected in any mammalian tissue has led to the question of whether any process this exists whereby endogenous DMT could somehow be concentrated to reach significantly high in vivo levels, the, the um, threshold levels. And so 
it can it could be a signaling molecule along the lines of hormones or you know like cytokines um but the fact that it isn't made in the neurons and it's made at such low concentrations you know you could maybe hypothesize that it's sort of a you know like a byproduct when they're making serotonin and, and uh dopamine it's just sort of like the enzyme messes up or something and then kicks out the the dmt um because there certainly doesn't seem to be like a specific production pathway for it um so i i don't i think you're right i don't think they necessarily like i don't think we necessarily know um whether or not it's a neurotransmitter or not and that's part of the problem yeah and and they also they do offer i think alternative explanations for um what's um, causing out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences. Um, it says uh, it could be the production of dynorphin and other endogenous opioid peptides. Accumulating evidence suggests that uh, dynorphin is a cognate cap opioid receptor play an important role in regulating stress responsiveness, motivation, and motion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I guess that's one explanation, and um, even in the conclusion, he says more well-studied systems. Although the romantic notion that DMT is released from the pineal gland to produce altered states of consciousness at various times of stress is appealing to some, more well-studied systems provide more sound exma- explanations for out-of-body experiences. I think that it, I think that in his the way that that was worded, essentially, he's giving a nod to the fact that like people are holding on to this for some like the safety blanket, like I was, I was uh, mentioning, like like, Mm -hmm. there's some um, comfort in the fact that it could be DMT. Um, But you're right. So he says, okay, I mean, basically they do a number of studies and they show that DMT does bind to serotonin receptors. Um, It binds to 5-HT2. Basically all of the psychedelics bind to 5-HT2. Um, there's a bunch of, there's like, you know, 20 plus serotonin receptors, but it does bind there. Um, in doing so, it then leads to changes in serotonin signaling. So, you know, it can increase serotonin signaling. Um, and that could be behind sort of where you're getting some of these experiences from. So that it's like a secondary effect. It blocks, uh, serot- the, the reuptake, uh, cert, like, so SSRIs block those. I think they were talking about DMT essentially reversing the serotonin reuptake transporter. So instead of it sucking serotonin out of the synapse into the neuron and, and lessening the effects of it, it's actually pushing the, the serotonin out because of differences in the, in the electron balance, like, the, like I was saying with calcium earlier. Um, so there is activity in the receptors that uh, are certainly implicated in all of the psychedelics. Um, but in the paper that we reviewed in the last, uh, episode, um, you know, there was, I, I, I don't remember how many there were, but they're like 10 or 12 different, um, you know, uh, plants that had psychoactive compounds in it. And of all of those, uh, salvia is the only one that binds to Kappa, the Kappa opiate receptor. Um, mm. so that would put DMT in the sort of same category as salvia. Um, but I think it, I think that salvia is pretty concentrated just to the opioid system while the DMT sort of hits that and the serotonin at the same time. Um, ultimately, you know, we ran into the same problem with the psychedelics because you can very clearly like say take an amphetamine and 
very clearly see that it's uh, affecting the dopamine system. The dopamine levels are increased and it binds, you know, directly to that receptor. When it comes to the psychedelics, the serotonergic system and the serotonin receptors are so complex that we don't necessarily even have methods to tease apart, you know, how, what psychedelics are working at, at what receptors and how does that relate to uh, the effects that they do. And, you know, a lot of the stuff with the zebrafish, we were trying to make a model where, where you could explore that. Um, and the other interesting thing along that line with the serotonin is that uh, if they block serotonin receptors, uh, it doesn't change the behavioral aspects in the rats. So they give them DMT, they are more, uh, more hypermotility. So they're moving around their cage a lot more. And if they block the dopamine receptors or the serotonin receptors and then give them the DMT, there's no change. They all, they still continue to have the hypermotility. So it's not necessary. That would suggest that serotonin and dopamine receptors aren't necessary for the effects of the DMT um, because it didn't change the behavior. So it just, you know, it's piling on complexities like, uh, you know, 10 pages of if then statements and we just lose track of it at some point because there's so much, so many serotonin receptors and, and uh, their downstream effects are so, you know, so wild. And what, there's a whole section on INMT. Um, it, it's, uh, it's the key en enzyme necessary for the biosynthesis of DMT. Uh, INMT is present throughout the body and has high expression in the lungs. Um, so it says proponents of the theory of DMT is produced endogenously in significant amounts. This is one of their um, arguments that since the I and MT enzyme is all over the body, then that might be causing it. So um, I guess what is the argument against that? Um, well, so yeah, they're saying that I am INMT is an enzyme that's involved in synthesizing or making endogenous DMT. Yeah. Um, the where it starts to fall apart is that essentially the this enzyme is found throughout the body, particularly in the lungs, but it's that it's it's predominantly present in the peripheral tissues. So it's not uh, it's not really found in high concentrations in the nervous system or in the brain. Um, and so because of that, like the, the main physiological function would essentially be non, non-neural, non, uh, in the nervous system. Um, so that's where it sort of falls apart. Yes, we do have the enzyme that can produce DMT in high concentrations throughout the body, but it's not in the brain. And then there's a whole, um, there's a whole section about can DMT be concentrated in the brain? So there, um, let me see. Uh, he quotes uh, another paper that says there's evidence DMT is taken up into the synoptosomes and stored in vesicles by mechanisms identical to those described for known neurotransmitter substances. Um, and he and Nichols points out there's no citation provided to support that contention, mm -hmm. and no study has been mm -hmm. reported to date to support that conclusion. And I would just think just a common sense since it's the DMT trip experiences only takes people say 10 or 15 minutes, then you, you, you couldn't really accumulate it um, in, in enough amounts naturally to, yeah. to have any effect. 
Yeah, yeah. And so this is where they were talking about how quickly it gets transported into the nervous system. Um, Okay. How how quickly? So it's it's rather unique compared to other other chemicals, other catecholamines, in that when you consume it, it does seem to not. It's not in the nervous system, but it gets to the nervous system very quickly. Um, which would suggest there's some sort of like active mechanism that's that's doing that. It, it's going through the cert receptors. You know, it's hitting something where it's getting thrown into the neurons. So there's sort of their hypothesis here is like, okay, uh, maybe DMT isn't made in just the penile gland, but there's enough of it made in your lungs and all over your body that it could get concentrated and then get released. You know, if it, if there's not proof that it's made in concentrations in the penile gland. Maybe they're all. Maybe it's getting accumulated over time and then is released uh, in certain things, like when there's calcification or, or, or brain dead, essentially without the neurons just firing sort of haphazardly. Um, they also were talking about giving them MAOIs, and so they would give them the MAOIs, you know, two hours before an experiment, and then they found that the DMT was readily uh, p- passed through the blood-brain barrier, suggesting that DMT accumulation had the properties of an active uptake mechanism uh in the in the cortical parts of the of the uh rat brain usually usually compounds especially ones that you consume exogenously aren't like welcome welcomed into your nervous system with a with a red carpet but it seems like dmt is yeah and there's also this other um there's some talk about glutamate there um it's one of the he has like a six point conclusion at the end and um, <laughs> he's talking about asphyxiation and cardiac arrest. Um, might be the explanation explanation for the um the uh, near death experience. Um, and he says uh, asphyxia induces uh excessive release of the excitatory amino acid glutamate. Drugs such as ketamine, which also raise cortical glutamate can produce out-of-body experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so glutamate is that primary excitatory neuron, uh, neurotransmitter. So when it's mm-hmm. released, it generally leads to the release of other neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. Um, I think that... I think that it, the point about the asphyxiation and the cardiac arrest is pretty interesting in that when that occurs, so you lose o- oxygen or you have a heart attack, your brain activity spikes, it goes up. Uh, market increases in the neurotransmitters of dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin, the latter of which can stimulate that 5-HT2A, the hallucinogenic receptor. So I think that that's sort of what, what, what Nichols is hinting at here. And I think I, I mentioned it earlier in that like maybe DMT is not the sort of the key that goes in the lock but it, you know, opens the door some other way and then serotonin starts going crazy. Um, mm-hmm. That's a plausible explanation for, for its effects because it, you know, after it gets in the brain, we sort of like, don't really know where it goes. It gets, it gets degraded really quickly. It can bind to some receptors. Um, uh, but it, it more, it, more likely it leads to the, the excessive release of excitatory uh, neurotransmitters. And I've never read that book, The Spirit Molecule, or saw the documentary, but I'll have to uh, check it out. I pulled some YouTube comments that were pretty funny. Uh, (laughs) This one guy says, I would much rather hear this sort of education on it than some hippie hippie telling me to follow gestures and watch out for dragonflies. (laughs) 
what? This is on the <laughs> this is on the YouTube comments. He I think he was complimenting Nichols there. Uh, this is on his talk. I don't know what that means, but it was funny. Um, <laughs> Sounds like he was on DMT. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this other guy goes, we can't be too science-based because that's only viewing humans biologically. People have still failed to realize that, yes, we are physical beings. The life inside us is not physical. It's infinite. So if you think everyone's the same because we have the same biology, think again. We have very different souls that will go on forever, even when we are six foot under expand the mind don't reject yeah you know that happens quite a lot in neuroscience it gets critiqued for being too mechanistic you know trying to say that everything is related to you know change the the chemical sort of balances in your brain which is true um but it is also true that uh your environment affects that as well if not you know if not more just the same um yeah so they have a they have a point there, you know, but it's it's interesting. Like when you get into the cannabis space and now in the psychedelic space, there's so much um, so much social sort of uh, taboo or sort of you know myths and rumors about it, and people have had experiences that you know dramatically changed their life or maybe helped them you know get over something and sort of uh, allow them to forgive themselves, um, and so they don't necessarily want to be told. Well, it's just because it binding your serotonin two A dissolved your ego, and you were able to like talk to yourself in a different way. They think it's it's more than that, and and you know, given the sort of literally magical effects of some of these hallucinogens, it, you can't blame them. I think for holding on to that. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, the answer is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Like uh, Shane Moss, he's completely like science based, and he's you know done tmt so many times but he he's like he was saying well when you're when you smoke it in a couple days after all these things seem real to you and then you kind of come down and and if you're interested at all then you'll look at the actual science behind this and mm-hmm. yeah any mm-hmm. any like i went into the lsd experience thinking you know i was gonna see god and all that stuff and if anything, it made me uh, less of a, more of an atheist, because <laughs> I, I I was just yeah. like I wasn't like oh I met God I was more like what the fuck just happened to my brain that was weird. <laughs> yeah, God is everywhere. God is everything. Um, it, it's true. It's uh you know and and unfortunately sort of pop culture and those social taboos, you know in movies like I would say the majority of people literally think if you take LSD you're going to see like a pink elephant, like just see things that are not yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and that's just not the case. That's not the case with mushrooms or LSD. Um, you know, it just goes, I think it goes to show you how well the federal government sort of scared the <laughs> shit out of everybody. Yeah, really? Um, but when, but you know, when DNT gets in the mix, like, you know, uh, people say that they literally feel like they're going to another sort of realm. And yeah. um, like I mentioned last week, the, they, there are similarities from trip to trip to trip. Whereas with the other psychedelics, it's more sort of uh, reliant on the environment, sort of how the experience goes. Whereas DMT, it sort of doesn't matter where you're at. You're going to take the hit. You're going to you know, like fall back and then you're going to be gone for a little bit. And then you, and then you come back. Um, it is, it is wild. And I think it's wild. I mean, everybody, we all know serotonin sort of modifies a lot of brain behavior, but with the opiate system, there's only three receptors. Two of them are involved in pain. Why would this third one, this kappa, 
like uh, be involved in modulating sort of your conscious experience? I, I don't think we have answers to that. You know, they point to how small the um, endogenous amounts are, and and is 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 it kind of along lines? Because like like uh, homeopathy is like a kind of a pseudoscience that says if you get trace amounts of something and dilute it with a million gallons of water, you'll still get the effects. I wonder if that's kind of along the lines of since there's trace amounts of DMT, then it must be still actively doing something uh yeah much like, like background noise or yeah. something you know there's a huge push for microdosing of psychedelics at this point it's pretty pretty mainstream i was surprised at, at the elon musk snl last week or this weekend he mentioned mushrooms so the, the, during that mario skit like it's just everybody's talking about mushrooms now oh um, yeah yeah but it, you know with not necessarily with mushrooms but with LSD and DMT, we're talking about micrograms, like nanograms, it's such low concentrations that cause these sort of, you know, drastic effects. So the idea that like, okay, maybe there's not two milligrams that are pushed out from your penile gland when you're born and when you die, but it is all over your body. It's got to be there for some reason. Like mm-hmm. you can't, it, it, maybe it could be that it's just a byproduct of an enzymatic activity, but given that when you take enough of it, you get sort of transported. I think there's, I think there's merit to hypothesizing that like, it could just be sort of, you know, a background noise, but with no sort of negative uh, connotations to that, just sort of like, you know, sort of uh, in the background, keeping things going while serotonin and dopamine are, are running the show. Is uh, Nichols, they say, I think on his Wikipedia, they say he's kind of still working, uh, but he he officially retired in 2012, but he's still working because there's really nobody else doing the same thing that he's doing. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the only person that's doing it, so David has a son named Charles. Charles was at LSU, Louisiana State University, okay. which is right down the block from uh, Tulane Medical School where I went. And so cool. he's doing it. His son is doing it. Um, and they're doing it on fruit flies, but yeah, when we first tried to get, uh, LSD or psilocybin, um, from the DEA, cause we had the DEA license, uh, we actually went over and talked to Charles about it first to just get like the down low on how, how it was, because essentially, you know, there are not very many labs, like uh, maybe less than 20 labs that are, uh, that have a DEA license and are able to investigate, and try to untangle this uh, this situation. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we're really pursuing like the, the fundamentals of consciousness at this point, right? It's like the final frontier is figuring out how all these serotonin receptors sort of in concert with all the other chemicals, uh, you know, allow us to, to have consciousness and, and thoughts and uh, et cetera. So yeah, there's not a lot, but I think that it, I think that with the public interest growing more and people sort of getting good therapeutic benefits, um, it's real good that we're we're going back and looking at these things because the artificial, fully synthetic ones that are the pharmaceuticals now just aren't as effective. Um, you know, they're just sort of like throwing a dart at the wall, hoping they hit the dartboard. And some fifty percent of the time they hit the dartboard, fifty um, percent of the time they don't. I mean, I know we're talking about mushrooms and LSD and, and therapy again, but I don't even know if, is there any talk about using DMT in like a therapeutic setting? Well, I think, it, you know, ayahuasca 
uh, you know, I don't know yeah, that's your, true. how you would describe therapeutic in that, like, you know, yeah, you can go to places and a shaman helps you, you know, you're not going to a, uh, the, uh, psychiatric Institute at, you know, the Cleveland clinic, you're, yeah. you're sort of going <laughs> a little bit more homeopathic. Um, so I don't think, you know, like MDMA has certainly made it into psychologist offices where people will take MDMA and then sort of stay in the room while the, while the psychologist or the psychiatrist is there with them, sort of um, probing them and, and leading them to different places. Um, we're not there with, with DMT. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if, if we'll, if we will ever be there given that, like, you know, given that the effects are, you like feel like you disappeared and you're, and you're just sort of like in another realm. I, I don't know necessarily how you could, yeah how anybody could help you use that in a therapeutic way. It's sort of like a, uh, sort of like a soul quest of the, you know, the young men becoming, becoming men uh, out in the woods by themselves. You got to figure it out yourself. It's kind of weird. I don't even know that I'd want to like trip in a uh, doctor's office. I'd really have to, <laughs> I'd really have to trust the, the uh, psychiatrist or whoever would be the, in place of the shaman. But, uh, for sure, doctor. Within thirty minutes, I'm gonna. I'd be wanting to go outside. Yeah. I got, you want me to sit here? No, yeah. thanks. I gotta move. I'm yeah. to move. <laughs> really. <laughs> and uh, uh, Carl Hart in his book said he thought it was creepy. <laughs> to I mean, it, it, it kind of is. It's it, it's interesting. I've looked into. Um, I've looked into. There's qualifications and like certifications that PhDs can get to open up uh like mdma therapy or psilocybin therapy um and I, you know I, i'm with you i'm with you and i, I sort of spent the same thing with cannabis where like you know we weren't necessarily introduced to cannabis as medical cannabis when we were growing up the kids now it's not something that you get behind the convenience store like it's a it's considered a medicine and you can buy it at a at, a, at an establishment that sells it. Right. And so yeah. because of that, I feel like the people that, um, like the people that have always seen cannabis as a therapeutic compound get more therapeutic benefits from it than people who were sort of exposed and grew up with cannabis as sort of like a, a drug that needed to be hot, you know, hidden and yeah. the paranoia and everything. Um, so, you know, psychopharmacology 101 set and setting and so the set is different uh for cannabis and so it, it, i think that your thoughts going into it especially with the dmt or the mdma um certainly have a lot to do with what you get out of it and, yeah but i'm with you i don't want to do it inside in a, in a sitting in a chair with a <laughs> yeah. I think they put a mask over you like a sleeping mask over your face and it just seems weird um that or like doing it in a um a float tank I don't know if I'd like that either. Oh, I, don't, I don't like the idea of being confined. Yeah, I'll I'll try a float tank uh, under the influence of nothing, and but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. want to add stuff that <laughs> could possibly induce severe paranoia. Yeah, let me and just see. Also, I look at. I'd look at the doctor's uh, magazines. If he has those usually shitty magazines in the waiting room, I'm not going to yeah. take acid in his office if he, if he likes People magazine. So. Yeah, Men's Health from 1992. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it depends on how good the reading material is in the office. And The music is Moonrunner by Captain Big Wheel. Thank you, Dr. John Cachet, for walking me through this. It's melatonin, not melanin. 
check Dr. Jonathan Cachet out at jcachet on social media. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by Brian Gallagher, that's me, for KratomScience.com. Take care.